1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in British Studies, podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm talking with Joseph J. Krolder, author of the book The Execution of Admiral John Bing as a microhistory of 18th century Britain. Joe, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, um, I teach here in Northern California. I'm a British historian, though, and ex-Navy guy. The Navy took me around the world, and everywhere I went, there seemingly was the ghost of the British flag. Got to wondering about that, so I decided to go to England to earn my PhD um, from the University of Bristol, which is a lovely city as well as a lovely university. I have two amazing daughters. I am...
1: living life well. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Uh, So what led you to uh, write this book about Admiral John Bing? Well, it was kind
0: of a comedy of uh, errors, and I came across his name while studying at the University of California in Chico. And we had a class in European nationalism. And while there... Um, I also came across a quote from Winston Churchill, who said that really the First World War was the Seven Years' War. And that got me to thinking that, well, certainly during the Seven Years' War, there must have been an incredible bout of nationalism going on because so much was at stake. It was indeed a global war. India, and Canada and North America and the Caribbean, parts of Europe, it was all up for grabs. Let me check this out. I looked at France first and nada, couldn't find anything <laughs> with, with nationalism. So I turned my attention to the newspapers of uh, London and lo and behold, early on with all the losses that were occurring with Britain at the beginning of the Seven Years' War, there was this name that kept popping up, John Bing. Admiral John Bing, and I got to thinking about Linda Colley and how the British kind of portrayed who they were by what they were not. And sure enough, in the newspapers, here was John Bing being exposed to the British public as this is how you are not supposed to be British. He was not a British sailor. He was not victorious. He was not doing well, and he needs to... um, pay the price for that. So uh, I latched on to the
1: story and it just kind of stuck with me forever. So you uh, talk about John Bing, but you approach it using the tools of microhistory. And I, I feel that's something that we should probably uh, ask you to explain. To, what exactly is microhistory and how does that inform your uh, approach to both John Bing and the period more generally?
0: I'm going to answer that by going uh, answering your last question first. In researching, I kept coming across inconsistencies. Um, either um, John Bing today is still portrayed as a coward, for example, and that doesn't only show up in the regular press or in garden books or you know wherever John Bing's name is mentioned, but it also. Uh, keeps popping up in academia books. And and I'm looking at the evidence and he's, he is not what these people are saying. So what's going on here? Um, There were already uh, three pretty good books that focused on John being and the loss of Menorca in 1756. And all of them were political and military. And I decided that is decidedly not what I want to do. So I chose to look at this through the lens of microhistory instead. So the driving question was, what was going on in Great Britain and in the world that caused John Bing to lose his life for something he didn't do? Hmm. Well, the best way to do that was uh, through microhistory. And I guess uh, microhistory, most people are very used to you know, people like Carlos Ginsberg, for example, who wrote The Cheese and the Worms, uh, The Cosmos in the 16th century Miller. So we're looking at uh, an oddity in history. Um, usually when we talk about history from the 16th century, we don't have much on the common folks or the people. So when we get a, a glimpse of someone who is just a mere Miller popping up from 16th century text, then it's an oddity for historians. Uh, and Ginsburg, the cheese and the worms was there because of court records and he's looking at them and there's a compelling story here. And so we get the cheese and the worms, um, Salem possessed was a book that I read a long time ago, the Minutemen and their world. Um, ex- ex- uh, excuse me. Um, I need to back up a bit. Go ahead. All right. Uh, the Social Origins of Witchcraft, which was by uh, Paul Boyer and Nissenbaum, um, looked at the, a specific place, Salem, Massachusetts. Um, and so we get, uh, a, uh, you know, in time, that that moment that's in a particular place. Um, and the same with uh, Robert Gross, The Minutemen and the World. It's Massachusetts. It's, just, it's a particular place. Um, a Midwife's Tale, The Life of uh, Martha Ballard, and her diary. So we get to look at a, a specific person that was by Laurel Ulrich. Uh, Patricia Cohen, the murder of Helen Jewett, again, another oddity, um, but it's a specific time uh, by a, uh, in a specific place by a specific person. Um, and uh, what gets me about microhistory is that we're allowed to really hit the research hard and bring in threads that would normally get lost if uh, we were to write a a grand narrative of something. So there's some pretty good uh, books that do mention John Bing uh, as as a chapter. So for example, uh, Kathleen Wilson wrote about it in the sense of the people, Um, but she only uses Bing to make a certain point. Um, I, I wanted to expose... The, the other threads, the other things that were going on uh, in Great Britain, in the globe, in England itself, in London itself, uh, to expose how this could possibly happen, that someone uh, with that name, Bing, which was a huge name, phenomenal stature, um, father was the Viscount of Torrington, his brother was the treasurer of the Navy, um, you know, it, it was... He was a somebody, and how how a somebody can come to the demise? It had to be more than just politics and military. So the obvious thing for me to do was to track down microhistory as a methodology.
1: And I, I, one of the things that fascinates me in, in your use of the methodology is how you open up so much with it. I mean, there's so much going on at this time, not that the, so much of which uh, is is not the direct result of of, of what you know being has done, or or even as a result of this, uh, you know, this, this incipient war that's taking place between Britain and France in in, in the, in the mid 1750s. Instead, you talk about how there are all these broader uh cultural changes social changes that are taking place and how bing's uh, the, the the episode of, of bing's trial and execution can can help us to, to get it almost like a snapshot of that moment and, and see how all these forces are in place some of which have, have never been uh at play before and i was thinking in particular you see that with your chapter on the cultural impact of ballads, and, and and how the, the these ballads, i mean we think of you know ballads is sort of, you know, folk songs and so forth, and, and how you, you described in your chapter about how the ballads that you're seeing uh, during this period, there, there are some very political ones that are seeking to comment on the events of, of Bing's uh, uh, failed relief of Menorca and, and, and his subsequent trial for it.
0: The amazing thing about ballads is uh, it does away with uh, – a historical error, I think. Um, one of the historical errors is is to really focus on literacy. How literate is society? And no, um, people talk. Um, you forget that society at one time is oral. Um, it, it could be whether or not you pass down songs from one generation to another. Um, you could pass down stories and and news. And, and the great thing about balance is. You can take a known song and change the lyrics to that known song. You still have the tune and then fill it in with what is happening in the world at that particular time. So it's like the news sung to you. And of course, the ballads would be sung in bars, of course, you know, ale houses. uh, But they would be, you know, uh, uh, sung in church pews at at times, depending on the, the... political views of of the preacher or whoever. They could be sung uh, out in the streets uh, during fairs. Um, And that's the thing about 18th century society is uh, the orality of it. And people may have, and people who couldn't read, may have learned the news through these ballads. And ballads were being written by pretty much every Uh, level of British society. So, you know, whether you were from the lower ranks or from the upper ranks of society, an elite politician, newspaper guy, you know, you just put wit and news in verse and rhyme and sang the song. And there were so many ballads being sung about uh, the loss of minorca. I just couldn't ignore it. And I had to add that chapter in.
1: You have this and, and as you just noted, this great chapter about the about how uh, Bing's, uh trial was something that was sung about, and and, and in that sense the uh, you know arguments were presented in it. But it's also a period in which you're starting to see a new written culture taking hold, and that's with the emergence of the newspaper. Now, there's been a lot written about the emergence of a press during the 18th century, but as you describing your chapter on it, it's that that. Uh, the, the case of, of John Bing is, is a moment which has not really been fully appreciated in terms of its role in the development of the press. What was the, the press like in the 1750s, and and how did Bing's trial uh, bring about this, this moment of crystallization?
0: It's an interesting question. The newspapers kind of acted upon uh, that orality strand. So, for example, you would have three lines in a row, and none of them had anything to do with them. There were no headlines. There were no uh, paragraph breaks. So you would get a sentence that said, a man was walking down the strand and got hit in the head by a brick and died instantly, period. And then the next sentence would pop up. Um, The Belfry Tower um, over in Coventry caught fire, it was a band of locusts that somehow allowed flames to sneak inside and the tower is damaged. And then period. And then the next sentence would talk about, oh, a ship came in carrying 230,000 tons of pepper. Aren't we lucky? Period. You know. Um, so it's just as if two people were standing at a fence post just gossiping. And that's how 18th century newspapers usually talk. The man was walking down the street when he got hit in the head by a brick. Well, what man <laughs> you know um what's the name of the guy? You know it, it didn't matter. It was just a man. or um a, a woman was arrested for stealing a bolt of silk. Okay, what woman? Where was the bolt of silk from? Who was selling it? You know, um, there was no headlines, no details, no, nothing. It's just gossip. And reporters, there were reporters, but what the reporters reported was the you know they go into a bar, they listen, they write down what people are talking about, then they run back and tell the editor, and the editor creates a column and or a sentence in this case, and uh, there it is, you know that's that's the report, that's what a newspaper is. The problem comes in that anonymity. Allows you to say just about anything, whether it's true or not. And so, when news that the Battle of Menorca didn't go as well as planned, what we see in the newspapers is Bing's name attached to it because he was a someone, so we can toss all that away. He's in charge of the fleet. We can make sure that his name sticks, but that we can still make stuff up and put it in the newspaper, even though Bing's name is attached to it. Nothing was really factual. So when you read these 18th century newspapers, you have to understand the culture and of print at the time, which is one that's just based on hearsay,
1: if that makes sense. It's interesting as well, because you also talk about pamphlets, and pamphlets go to this slightly older tradition where you have more extended uh discussions uh arguments uh analyses being provided and it seems that what's happening in the seventeen fifties as you describe it is almost like the that newspapers are becoming a bit more like pamphlets in that respect, but whereas pamphlets are targeted toward uh might you know, think of as an as, as, as a, uh, a elite audience, uh, a literate audience, uh, uh, an audience of, of what we might call influencers, that the newspapers have, have more broader coverage and thus speak to this growing popular element that, that you describe uh, throughout your book as playing this uh, role in the, in the Bing tribe.
0: Well, pamphlets also cost money. And so it's people with money that would buy the pamphlets. Newspapers would be purchased by coffee shops. And normal a normal coffee shop would purchase not just one newspaper or subscribe to a newspaper. They would subscribe to several. So, um, you know, Yoko walks in, wants a cup of coffee. <laughs> There's a bunch of newspapers <laughs> laying around. He's going to pick one up if he can read. Um, and even if that person couldn't read, there usually would be a person around that was a reader. You pay him a penny or a pence and he would read the newspapers to you. So, the idea that uh, that newspapers were somehow coming into their own is true. People were listening to what newspapers had to say. And the interesting thing is, with pamphlets, there's a certain fixity, I call it. Uh, the, the, what's in print stays in print. The, the story doesn't change. That pamphlet is out there, people can buy it. They can stick it on a shelf, but when they open up that pamphlet, it's still going to be the same exact story as it was when they first bought it. Newspapers, on the other hand, change every day or at least once a week. And so when you walk in to get that cup of coffee, oh, there's a new newspaper. You open it up, the story has changed. There's something different. It's more lucid, it's more oral, it's more gossip, it's more fun to read. The story continues to go and go. It's not fixed. And I think the popularity of newspapers really begins right here in the Bing story, because as I pointed out in the chapter, subscriptions went way up. Um, um, Newspaper startups throughout uh, provincial England went way up. They're all talking about the war. That's the big concern. That's the anxiety that's driving this. So, when Braddock loses his life in the backwoods of Pennsylvania, or George Washington doesn't save the day at Fort Necessity, or Oswego falls, um, and now we have Menorca, um, yeah, people are reading about this because they're subscribing to newspapers because they're cheap, number one, and the story continues to change and alter each and every day. Or it's even free to you if you just walk into a coffee shop. That's why I think newspapers, this is, this is the decade that newspapers come into their own.
1: And as you just described, there's this engagement with the, the uh, loss of Menorca that, that as you uh, note is uh, from the start of the book, it is sort of a microcosm of these problems that Britain was having at the beginning of the, the seven years, War, the this, this global conflict that they engaged in with France, which, you know, for the first two, three years was, was not very successful and, and how, Bing seems to be in many ways, uh, uh, you know, sort of, a, a, you know, a scapegoat for all this, uh, it, not, not in a literal sense, but in the sense that, you know, there, there's, there's a need to, to make someone accountable for the fact that Britain isn't doing as well. One of the things you, uh, also do in your book though, is you don't just talk about the trial, but you talk about the factors that influence this outcome. How, when Bing goes to, to try to, uh, 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 relieve the, uh, the garrison of Minorca about how it's 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 an under-equipped uh, 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 expedition. How he doesn't have the you know it's not like the, the entire Royal Navy goes <laughs> sailing into the Mediterranean to save the day. It's it's a few ships and and, and a lot of them are are. Uh, are uh And as you explained, there's a lot going on that denifluses And you talking for, for, for one example of price culture. And, and price culture, I thought that your explanation does a really great job of, of showing how, you know, the, the naval warfare at the time was different and, and how it's it's almost a tragedy that that Bing, who the events of his trial and execution tended to obscure. Was seen as a very successful admiral in, in, uh, up to that point, and and how pri- how the issue of prizes and, and the uh, and the seizure of, of French merchant vessels was it was an example of how he made his name as a successful admiral.
0: I really enjoyed writing that particular chapter on prize culture. The fact of the matter is, the war was not declared until. You know, Bing was on his way, uh, leaving Portsmouth um, for Menorca. Um, so it's like uh, May of 17th, May seventeenth, I believe, uh, in seventeen fifty six. Well, it, for prizes to be taken by, um, you know, what we would consider privateers, um, that the privateer is only existing after the declaration of war. You have to have a letters of marque. And without a declaration of war, corporations or towns or merchants who have wealth or anybody else who wishes to build and operate an outfit and man a privateer, uh, they're out of luck. They got to wait. They got to sit on the sidelines. Um, so when the Navy preemptively attacks France in 1755 and captures overall in the Atlantic 353 uh, French merchant vessels all that money goes where and um that's what drove me to to write this chapter is like well, that's that's a lot of ships a lot of cargo what happened to these French sailors what, what's going on here 7,200 plus French sailors are now prisoners of war when there's no war um that's interesting. Okay. Um, well, how much is that cargo worth? Well, they weren't selling it yet. What? What's this, this was all just strange to me. So I had to take a deep dive into how privateering worked and then how different it was for the Treasury Department, the King's Treasury Department, to take control of these captured ships, to keep them moored in harbors. Uh, they were used as diplomatic tools. The men were used. The captured sail- French sailors were used as diplomatic tools, dangling before the French. You know, meet us this way. Get out of Canada. You'll get your men back. Um, give us a couple islands in the you know the uh, the Caribbean, and you know you, you might be able to uh, get some of your cargo back. You know, this this was a dip a diplomatic tool that was attempting to sway France to accept the peace on British terms. And it was super successful. It's one of the most successful preemptive strikes, perhaps in all of British history. Um, They captured 353 ships. I think the total loss of merchant ships in Britain at the same time was 17. You know, that's just ungodly lopsided. Um, So I had to look into... Well, once the ships were beginning to be sold, what did that look like? And I spent a good six or seven months scouring uh, the National Archives at Kew Gardens, trying to find this uh, the answer to this question. Um, and what really propelled me was a French historian who claimed that the French lost uh, Thirty million livres, or oh, how much ever that is in in 1750s valuation, that was Jonathan Dahl. and I was like, okay, well the British write everything down; they just do, um, uh, particularly the Treasury Department. So uh, let's check the Treasury papers, and for whatever reason, there was an audit of about these captured French ships. That wasn't completed until the year 1769. Well, the war ended in 1763. This audit must have been incredibly extensive. But when you look at the what the auditors wrote, line by line, putting valuations on things as simple as transportation cost or taxi service or uh, buying candles or curtains for the office, um, you realize the impact on Uh, the economic impact on these port cities during times of war when there were privateers and it wasn't the Royal Navy capturing ships. And that's that's something that's not been added to the Bing story, is that you have merchants bursting at the seams to send their privateers out and being told no. There's 300 ships that John Bing and Edward Hawke together capture. And merchants are not getting any of that money. That money is going straight to the king's treasury. Um, And so I think you can then therefore see that there might be under the breath of merchants, a little cursing going on um, (laughs) against the Royal Navy, against Edward Hawke, against John Bing. um, Because by every measure, that is like, Oh my God, super successful, you know, and, and then finding, well, how much money was it? How much exact money was it? That took a couple of months. And I worked with, uh, archivist at the national archives and, uh, we struggled, we struggled mightily to find these numbers. And fortunately I finally was able to find it because some obscure bank, which was holding an account in like a year after the war by the way we have all this money here from the captured prize ships and we only paid this amount to people but we got this much left and it's like oh and then you you did the uh you did the valuation change you know um you looked at was you know the exchange rate between the lira and the british pound and it came out it seems to be about right 30 million 32 million lira um but 1.6 million british pounds in 1757 is an enormous amount of money um so that's that was what was fun and that's what i got to share uh with the chapter on prize culture and where where some of that anger came from because it seems disproportional being did what in the menorca you know menorca was an island that not many people really cared about and we um we can see that in um in, in the records, uh the newspapers and how how much you know there were only four warships in the entire Mediterranean um prior to the war. That was it. Four. You know, if 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 Menorca was really that important, there would have been more than four ships in the Mediterranean. So I think a lot of the anger at John Bing, disproportionate anger at that, came because of his super awesome success. <laughs> Um, in capturing French warships that denied merchants money,
1: that—that's my theory. And, and it, that anger, I, I think, it, it was is easy to connect to the the more existential question. And I and I was struck by this when you get to the chapters about you know the 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 Bing episode and how it's the. How it intersects with religion, and also then the the the, the mobs and, and their reaction to it, because unlike you know the merchant groups, you're not talking about people who have a practical financial stake in what the Royal Navy is doing, at least not a, a, a well, financial stake. And, but you have more of an existential question, especially when you're talking about religion. That's why I like your use of the word curse, because it's, it's so fitting in this sense, which is the notion of what does Bing mean, you know, in terms of, especially when you talk about a society that, that still, you know, had a, a religious, uh, you know, a very heavy religious presence, and how these things were often interpreted religiously. What does it mean to have the, this, this, this proud navy humbled by their failure what does it mean to uh and, and of course this is also you know and and, and the, the the soul searching that that takes place with that and so so you know how did how did you know how was this dealt with from a faith perspective i mean how how did these ministers were they uh heaping upon Bing? was it more of a defense of it was it more of a what do they use it as a moral critique of, of what's happening more in, in broader british society what's going on there
0: You know, the question um, I remember asking my supervisor point blank, I said, why is there no religion in the story? And he kind of shrugged his shoulders. And I said, you know, a lot of history written in Britain in the 18th century is like devoid of a religious story. Uh, You know, you got to talk about um, the moral foundation of dissenters. Uh, And for those that don't know, dissenters are folks who aren't part of the Church of England. Um so, you know, you got Puritans, you got Quakers, you got Baptists, you've got Methodists, you've got Congregationalists, you have Presbyterians, you, you know, the list is huge. uh and some of them have their own schools, their own universities, their own printing presses. Um and it's a transatlantic thing. It's not just and that's the other that's another side note. <laughs> I get <laughs> I get I get really bothered um by uh, colonial historians uh, of America that seem to have blinders on and don't recognize that those colonialists were British subjects, you know um, you know don't continue to call them Americans um, because many of them consider themselves uh, subjects to the crown of Britain um, especially these religious networks that were, uh, that were built uh, over a long period of time going all the way back to the 17th century and just kept getting stronger uh, as time went forward. So there was an evangelical revival in Britain in the 1720s and 30s, and that spills over into what we know as the Great Awakening uh, in colonial America, the barnstorming, the screaming, the shouting of... Uh, Of dissenters to crowds out of doors because there were no churches um, is a remarkable story in and of itself but what was fascinating to me was in the Bing story there was one particular pamphlet that was so ill-timed for Admiral John Bing because his trial was just about to finish when this pamphlet showed up And this pamphlet was written by a Virginian Presbyterian uh, way across the Atlantic named Samuel Davies. And he preached it to his lay folk in October the year before. And then he sent it on its way on these uh, transatlantic religious networks. And even though he was a Presbyterian, it landed before a Congregationalist. (laughs) <laughs> uh, who's part of this network? The same network. He's a member of it, and he writes the preface to a pamphlet called uh, "The Crisis," and it's it's a it's a damning pamphlet of British political culture at the time, British and military culture at the time, and it's in the same way that uh, Doctor Brown, more famous. Uh, pamphlet came out. Um, the name of Dr. Brown's pamphlet, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but it was phenomenally successful because mostly that one pamphlet was printed in three different places in London. It didn't carry a price tag. Uh, so the pamphlet was free to read. Uh, so, everywhere from, uh, you know, the the, where the sailors were, which was in Cheapside um and then in London proper itself, and another place out in London, and suddenly you have this pamphlet everywhere, uh just as this trial is is drawing to a conclusion, and it was a pretty damning excoriating um, you know, without any proof or sense, but it did drag uh, Admiral Bing's name through the mud and I, and I think it may have had an influence. Um, Well, you know, the guy who was was preaching at Haberdasher Hall in London, uh, Thomas Gibbons, he's the Congregationalist who had this printed. Um, I found his diary at the Dissenting Library in London, and he's talking about meetings with Arthur Onslow, who is the Speaker of the Parliamentary House House of Commons he's meeting with the ministers uh, before the fall of the Newcastle fox um, administration the rise of the Devonshire Pitt administration he's still talking to ministers um, about certain topics of the day and you know this topic the the loss of Menorca was in his diary he's talking about it and he's talking about how he's discussing it amongst others in the religious networks, but he's also making sure that the politicians know that this is a topic, the militia bill is a topic, these other things that are happening are topics, and that this amount of time that is being allowed to Thomas Gibbons by ministers is was surprising to me. I mean, uh, it's not what we would deem would happen today, but he's meeting with ministers on a weekly basis, names the restaurants and what they drank. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really quite remarkable that religion had this much say uh, internally. At the same time um, that Bing leaves Portsmouth in late April, of 1756, spy reports start to come in that the uh, Austrian Empire is looking to create a brand new Catholic League. Uh, and this is, you know, remarkable for the ministry. It goes into an incredible panic because, you know, the last year, Austria was on their side. The, the War of Austrian Secession, the, the British helped Austria, helped Catherine who becomes the empress to become who she is. And here she is like turning England away, looking to make a deal with France, make a deal with other Catholic nations to counter English aggression. This is, oh my, oh man, Bing better save Menorca. You know, I think that's where a lot of that religious panic comes from, at least uh, in the eyes of the ministers.
1: I I think it speaks to just how, you know, the, the, I, I thought that was fascinating to see, you know, the, your, you know, the meetings with the ministers and it spoke, speaks to how the governments of the day were as concerned about public opinion as they uh, are, you know, in, in, in our own time. And, and it's, of course, this is something that uh, we could speak of it in terms of how they spoke with people of influence, but they had to concern themselves with the broader public, not necessarily in the sense that most people could vote, but, you didn't need to have a vote in order to be able to riot, and you described how there's this phenomenon of rioting that takes place, and there are riots over Bing, but as you know, they're riots of a very, you know, that that, that are that seem to have a, a very different emotional, uh, sense to them, that they're, they're not that, and that they they seem to, be, to have a, a very different tenor. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain? You know what the role that rioting played, and how the Bing riots were a little different than the riots that were taking place over, say, food, and 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 the and the concerns for starvation and 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 dearth that existed uh, as a consequence of the war.
0: Uh, there were three major riots at the same time. There were these so-called Bing riots. So you have an opportunity as a historian to compare and contrast um Why were these riots happening? Um, what was the tenor of these riots? What did these riots accomplish or how how were they conducted? and so there's three major riots they're the uh, food riots of 1755 that continue all the way into 17, early 1757. There, there are impressment riots, um, people who are resisting being uh, conked in the head and saying, you're in the Navy now. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know that's, that's a fight for British liberties. Um, and then you have the alleged um, Bing riots. So when you look at all three of these riots, um, you see a remarkable uh, difference between each and every one of them. So for example, in food riots, these riots were conducted in a way where starving people. By the way, I'm going to back up a little bit. There was extreme wet weather two years in a row, um, and that just damaged crops. So Britain did not have enough, domestically, didn't have enough food to feed its own people. Um, you add to that <clears throat> the idea of regraders and forestallers and people who buy this, this food unseen, um, and then resell it, um, maybe even, um uh, resell it in markets overseas. So you're, you're suddenly, you see this harvest come in, they're put on barges, they're sent down river to a port city, and then they're put on a ship and it sails away and the people are hungry and starving going, Hey, <laughs> where are you going with that food? Um, and, and then, you you know, the prices are going crazy, Uh, people are hungry. So things happen. Uh, these riots start to occur. And I think it's, uh, 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 one of the first nationwide riots in Britain about food. There were other, you know, food riots before, but they were kind of regionalized, but this one was nationwide, you know, from Southern Scotland, all the way down to Wales. Um, and then across to Kent, you know, it was everywhere. Um, So these food riots um, were numerous, lots of hungry people who were out in the countryside um, that didn't have anything to do with agriculture. These were people who were put on these, uh, I guess, uh, outposts to produce produce Pins or needles or 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 you know weaving or or whatever it was parts for uh you know for manufacturing these these were the output um, uh, cottage system kind of thing, and they had no ties to local agriculture so once prices go up and food becomes scarce, the first place food is going to go is these major urban centers uh, so these these poor guys out in the countryside these nailers these uh Collier's, they're they're not getting any food. <laughs> uh, and the food that they get uh, appears to be uh, not only high in price, but low in quality. So they take it into their own to tear down uh, mills uh, and to tear down houses and to tear down property. So when we look at food riots, we can certainly see that the violence in these riots is against property. Uh, We'll teach that miller to adult the bread. We'll teach that baker to make smaller loaves. You know, we're going to tear down the baker's house or or just tear down the mill altogether. In impressment riots, what we see is uh, violence against people, violence against Navy gangs, uh, violence uh, that would be premeditated at that. So, um, maybe a Navy gang is looking for people and suddenly they'll be ambushed uh, because they knew the route that these sailors would take. Um, and then suddenly these sailors are now fighting for their lives um, and oftentimes losing it. Um, and very violent confrontations or um, gangs protesting. Um, you know, once, once a Navy gang takes a few people and put them on a barge Uh, to hold them for a while, you'll see people uh, attack the barge or row out to attack the barge um, or uh, attack the captain of, uh, you know, who's out on land. And and it was just a lot of tremendous personal violence in impressment riots. Um, And that was all over the country at the same time. All of this is happening in the context of newspapers talking about Bing, um, so you've got hungry people, you've got people fighting for their liberties, and now the story of Bing crops up. So are there Bing riots? And, well, maybe? Mm, no. <laughs> it's just, you know, if you if you want to say, okay, there's a guy with a stick over there and he's whacking an effigy of Bing. Um, yeah, I guess that's violent. Uh, if there's a effigy of Bing being... D- you know, dragged through the London streets and then hung by a gallows that's built for him. It's not really a riot, is it? Someone built that gallows at a cost of money. Um, You'll have colors flying and people drumming and grandstands being built, and they'll they'll watch uh, an effigy of Bing being brought in, hung, and then people will take pot shots at it. They'll burn it, take the ashes, throw it in the donkey heap, uh, dung heap. You know, it's just... Uh, there's not really anything that's violent. There were no buildings turned down. There were no, um, you know, people attacked. No, there's no, nothing in the old Bailey that says this person was arrested because they were protesting against Admiral Bank. There's just nothing there. And then I went to uh, Derbyshire and hung out in the archives up in the town of Matlock. Nothing there. Um You know, there's stuff there about food riots. There's stuff there about the impressment riots, but there's nothing there about Admiral Bing uh, riots. So I don't think these Bing riots were really riots. They were more instructional. We're going to teach you how to think about Admiral Bing. Uh, By the way, there'll be beer, there'll be ale, there'll be songs and merriment and horns and musicians. And oh, in the end of the day, you get to whack us you know, take your stick and take a whack at the effigy. I think it's more instructional than it was uh, anything from the bottom up. It, it appears more to be a top-down riot, if you want to call it that.
1: It, it is fascinating how, it, as as an example of how a lot of attention gets deflected uh, to Bing, in terms, of, a lot of blame, to be more precise, gets uh, deflected to Bing. And, and you describe how that is important to with like like Newcastle's uh, carriage comes under attack the, these the, these politicians are, are very much you know aware that there is a lot of discontent and it's not just about the abstract notion of this war that's that's being fought I mean, yes that matters to merchants yes that matters to uh, you know politicians but you're describing also in the book how the war has this very real impact at home in terms of shortages in terms especially of the issue of impressment and, and you have in your chapter on disease I thought a very interesting argument about how the impressment issue can be a a consequence of it can be seen with these outbreaks of disease, which contribute to the debilitation of the World Navy, how you have this mechanism for staffing the Navy that actually ends up costing it a a, a lot of its readiness uh, because of the diseases that were being spread from the uh, land to these uh, very cramped boats.
0: For the first time in British Royal Navy history, the need for sailors was intense. Uh, January of 1755, everyone knew the war was coming. The Privy Council knew the war was coming. The King knew the war was coming. So the orders put forth: we need to recruit thirty thousand sailors, thirty thousand to man ninety additional warships. That's a that's a staunch order there. Um, so the initial orders were to do what normally had been done, which is to collect uh, sailors, collect uh, sailors, impress them um, in river towns, in port cities, the, the normal places. But it was not going to be enough. There just it, There was not going to be enough men for that to occur. So quickly... Uh, in February, the next month, February of 1755. Okay, we're going to collect men from inland. Uh, we're going to go to the Midlands. We're going to go uh, to people where there are no rivers, to where you know no one has any, you know, the landsmen. That's who we're going to get. So they start to um, find that th- this is where the economics of England come in. And that put out system, that cottage system um, where people are working in very close confined quarters without any ventilation, without any food, Um, you know, a cough spreads among them. And pretty soon that one cottage is just stricken with some sort of disease, uh, some sort of distemper. And we've seen this happen before where certain sections of this economic Britain in, let's say, Lincolnshire uh, is suddenly stricken, but it doesn't go anywhere. It It didn't spread. It didn't spread because, you know, it was localized and it was taken care of on a local level. There was nothing national that would allow that disease to be exported. But now we have a recruiting system and a brutal one at that, where we're going to impress people inland where well, you're hitting these cottages. You're hitting um, these places where people are confined in very close quarters that are malnourished, that don't have enough to eat, that are f- succumbing to diseases. These are the people that the Navy starts bringing in to their collection centers and suddenly that disease begins to spread throughout the Navy. What's remarkable about this story is that disease is seen in Chatham. It's seen in Knorr. It's seen in London. It's seen in Portsmouth. Um, but these are Navy centers only. So when you look at the newspapers, which did list mortality rates for the city of London, for example, there is no outbreak of disease anywhere in the civilian population. This just struck the Navy. And when Admiral Bosquin, for example, goes to intercept a French fleet, um, that's heading to Canada, the previous in in 1755, 56, 56, I think it was, um, immediately he loses within a couple of months, 2000 men dead, you know, um, the hospitals in Portsmouth are filling up there's no there's no beds for them. they're They're putting them out on the lawns. but nothing in the nothing in the civilian population. my My theory here is that what the Royal Navy tapped into in going inland is they tapped into that that cottage system and brought back uh, the diseases that were inflicting some of the uh, malnourished and uh, folks that were, you know, confined in these very small spaces. What's interesting to me is the Royal Navy also recognized that their own ships were not ventilated very well. Um, And soon thereafter, I think like a year or two after, they start to put ventilators on ships uh, to see if, you know, if increased ventilation would, you know, increase the health of the crew. And sure enough, it did. Um, So I I think this is a a particular moment for people who study diseases and how they spread. Uh, That that's what this chapter is about, I think.
1: So you, you, to take, to, to sum all this up to this point, you have this very, uh, Volatile situation in which you have uh, a lot of events taking place, a lot of priorities which work out well, but not to the benefit of the Menorca expedition. And so you, and yet at the same time, Bing is simply leading a relief expedition. He's not the commander of the garrison at Menorca. He's not the one that's actually dealing with the French effort to to take the island in in uh, in seventeen fifty five and fifty six. So. Uh, and yet he's the one that gets the blame I was wondering if you could explain uh, summarize for us how all of this informs our uh you know our, our, our the trial in, in a way as to demonstrate how Bain becomes in many ways a scapegoat for all these various groups the 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 government uh the the army and how he becomes the this villain who who has this uh who becomes this this literally a, a a a global example i mean he you know produces the, the the famous phrase of voltaire's which which points to how the 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 nature of his fate how it's how it's you know become so iconic uh and remains iconic well over two and a half centuries later
0: well, i think um those who defended being um would come around samuel johnson by the way would be a major defender of admiral john bing and would point out quite easily that there were that bing was sent with too few ships with too few men um to do the job There were known to be 13 brand new french ships out of toulon brand new um so those are outfitted those French ships are outfitted. They've, they're have they well-to-do. They're out there in the Mediterranean. Um, Bing, on the other hand, has only 10 ships. All of those ships participated in the channel campaign the year prior. That only ended in November of 55. Um, so some of those ships are damaged. A lot of them are damaged because of storms in November that Bing sailed through anyway. So you've got these damaged ships. They've got all this sea floss, the barnacles and stuff that are on the bottom, they're not cleaned, they're not repaired, or they're haphazardly repaired. And so so these 10 ships, most of them are in a state of disrepair. They're short of men. When the, when the ship sails, uh, they sail uh, 856 sailors short. That's a significant number. Um, so instead of sailors, the... Ministry gave them Robert Bertie's, Lord Robert Bertie's fusiliers to help sail those ships. So these are army guys <laughs> trying to trying to pick up the, how do you sail a, a, an 18th century wooden sailing vessel? Um, hmm. Um, so, okay. So we've got 10 few, you know, 10 rotten ships, maybe um, being sailed by a partition of army guys. You know, they get to Gibraltar, Um, to pick up a regiment of Marines, which are then refused to them. And that's a weird story in and of itself. Uh, You know, from the beginning, things are looking pretty dicey for Bing. But I think what Bing does is he's, I'm going to go check out Menorca myself. I'm just going to sail out there with what I have. And hopefully I can land, um, because he had a thousand army guys with him (laughs) that he's supposed to put in that fort. Let me check it out myself. Um, and then when he gets there and when he's just about ready to open communications, that's when the French fleet showed up
1: on the horizon. So he is, uh, and, and yet, you know, even though all these you know, factors contribute to why he can't successfully relieve it. And I, I like the way you to the game book, which is that you know, there, there's a council that takes place. And there, and it is the, it is a consensus decision to uh, to to not uh, proceed with the relief, and it's a consensus decision to which nobody uh, disagrees. And yet, at the end of the day, it becomes and and granted, this reflects uh, to uh, to a considerable degree the notion of of, of you know is ultimately the commander's responsibility. But there's there's this idea that you know this was the, this was the sensible choice for the people on the scene. Who were fully aware of all these situations, and yet in the end, Bing is convicted of of having uh, of having been derelict in his duty and uh, not having done enough. When you know the the perception of everyone at the at that time was there was there was nothing more they really could do with with any prospect of success.
0: There's a uh, two consensus meetings that uh, I'd like to talk about. One. Um, and we'll call those meetings war councils cause that's basically what they were. Um, the original orders that Bing had, uh, directed him to find a fleet. And, uh, if the fleet, the Toulon fleet had left the Mediterranean for the Atlantic, he was to pursue the fleet into the Atlantic. So it's almost as if Menorca is secondary on this. And I need to make that clear. Um, uh, that fleet was his target. Um, When he pulls into Gibraltar, there are orders there to pick up a regiment of Marines and transport those Marines uh, to Menorca, but that's a secondary order. Um, When he arrives at Gibraltar and um, tries to refit his fleet with water and and food and wine, uh, finds the, the naval facilities at gibraltar in complete disrepair that's another story uh, there's a a consensus meeting there's a war council being held by the army and this army um chose without being being present um not to give being that regiment of marines which is remarkable to me um and it was remarkable to uh, the ministry back in London when they heard this. You know, um, yeah, it was it was a, it was a decision that was made that if Bing was to transport a regiment of Marines, and if he met the enemy, and if the enemy disabled him, uh, we would not have those Marines, and Gibraltar would be attacked next because Men- Menorca already had fifteen thousand French guys on it. And we're surrounding a, a garrison. That's not going to happen to Gibraltar. We're going to keep our Marines. And, um, and Bing's, Bing's not going to transport them. That's just not going to happen. Those are army guys that decided to do that. Um, these are the same army guys after the Battle of Menorca, a few weeks later, um, that agree with Bing. The best thing to do is to fly back to Gibraltar, resupply, um, and then take a look at um, uh, reattacking uh, the French fleet at Toulon as they did in the battle. So twice the army has a huge role here in determining the outcome of Menorca. Uh, just on these war council meetings, n- those army guys don't get any of this blame, do they? You know, And, and these are some big names. I mean, this is... Uh, uh Cornwallis this is uh, Robert birdie this is um, uh, General Stewart. these are these are some you know big names that we would recognize today um, and none of them historically have gotten any of the uh, flack for not protecting Menorca or not transporting Marines to pr- to protect Menorca but the army did work very very hard to protect its own at the time uh and to make sure that they didn't get any of that blame and that certainly has lasted through history they certainly have not popped up
1: hmm. well we've taken a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now um i'm actually
0: uh written a couple of chapters on um the the, the continuing bing's saga here um but in a more of a historical fiction sort of thing. So trying to imagine it in a fictional account, trying to fill in the blanks uh, that I can't, you know, I think I know what happened. I think this has happened, but you know, there's nothing to document it, but um, yeah, I got my eye on turning this into uh, perhaps a historical fiction novel.
1: Well, it sounds like a very worthy project. I look forward to reading it when you're done. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Joe Kroller, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Everybody have a wonderful day.